host, Nick Jaworski. We bring you the business of recovery because those struggling with addiction need you to be here tomorrow as well as today. Thank you for joining me here on the Recovery Executive Podcast. I'm your host, Nick Jaworski, CEO of Circle Social Inc., a strategic marketing firm for behavioral health and addiction treatment providers. Today, we are speaking with Dr. Brian Wind, who is the Chief Clinical Officer of Journey Peer and Regard Recovery Centers. It's a fascinating conversation on the use of technology and peer recovery support to improve patient outcomes. But before we get into that, I want to hear from our sponsors, ERP Health. Outcome tracking is made easy with ERP Health. ERP Health is the U.S. standard outcome tracking platform to deliver measurement-based care for behavioral health. Their products are equipped with tools to improve population health, enhance the experience and outcomes of patients, and reduce the cost of care in our communities. Tracking outcomes to individualize treatment and deliver measurement-based care benefits both providers and patients. You can visit ERPHealth.com to learn more and book a demo today. So I'm really excited to have Brian on the show today. It's actually been quite a while coming. We originally began discussing this app, man, two or three years ago, I believe. Uh, and it actually progressed significantly since then. And that's something that Brian will share on the interview in terms of just how important it is not just to have an outcomes tracking tool and a patient engagement tool that is available post-discharge, but also something that is supported by actual peer recovery supports. So if you listen to the previous podcast with Deb Nussbaum from Optum, she talked a lot about how important peer recovery support was from the payer perspective and the value that they saw in it. Well, Brian will tell us a lot about the massive success they've had in improving patient outcomes in care, doing just that, and then also providing backend reporting and engagement tool from their app that he was instrumental in developing. Another thing that we dig into related to not just patient outcomes, but also understanding the risk and the upfront cost of something like this. So for quite a while, Journey Peer was not able to get reimbursed for this investment that they made in the app, even though they, they knew it was highly likely to improve patient outcomes. They had to put it out there. They had to test it. They had to validate it. And then finally, they got the data back saying that there was this massive improvement, which led to a significant increase in reimbursements. Uh, as Brian will share with us on the interview. So there's this outlay process, just like opening up a new facility. It's not going to bring any return on it, and it's not going to fund itself for maybe a year, maybe two years, uh, which is always a challenge as a provider. Where do we invest our resources? Where do we invest our money and our time that we know is not just going to help patients, but also in a way that's sustainable so that we can continue to help more and more patients in the future? And if we do something that's losing money, obviously that's not going to help us in that goal and in that mission. So really appreciate Brian coming on. Great conversation that digs into the nitty gritty of all of that. With that, let's jump in. All right, Brian, really excited to have you on the show. I appreciate you taking the time to come on. Can you just tell us a little bit about yourself and your work at Journey Peer? Well, thanks for having me, Nick. Glad to be here with you today. So I'm Brian Wind. I am Chief Clinical Officer of Regard Recovery. Uh, within the Regard Recovery family of treatment centers are encompassed Journey Pure, Perspectives, Destination Hope, and Enso Recovery. 
Uh, we're operating in multiple different states. And in my chief clinical officer role, I am in charge of developing strategy for and implementation of all clinical operations for our company. So I really appreciate a lot of the conversations that we've had in the past and your, your knowledge in the space is just phenomenal. And so I, I do want to talk a little bit about the clinical aspect and how you look at things from a chief clinical officer, but you also have a really interesting um, integrated app that you were very instrumental in developing. So I'd actually like to start there because patient outcomes and tracking is a, a big thing that we touch on a lot here on the Recovery Executive Podcast. So you, you started working on an integrated app to help patients kind of post-discharge can you just kind of walk us through what that is and how it's evolved over the years? Absolutely. So in late 2013, it occurred to me that uh, my recovery pathway, having been a person in recovery since early 2003, had involved multiple layers of components that were really critical in my process of recovery. With us kind of entering a new tech era back in the uh uh, late months of early two, or excuse me, of 2013, um, you know, I recognized that smartphones had become more and more of a thing and was pretty certain they were going to uh, be the wave of the future. Um, with that being said, recognizing that a lot of my daily activities, everything from keeping track of uh, bank accounts to uh, navigating my way on the roads to messaging with people, all were done via my handheld digital device. So it occurred to me, why would this not be able to be my daily guidebook in recovery? It guides me through the other processes of my life. It makes perfect sense, right? That my smartphone could guide me through the recovery process. So I set about uh, the process of developing an app that would essentially serve as a recovery coaching app. It would create a mentorship type relationship between a recovery coach and a client to walk them through that ever important critical first year of recovery. Uh, I happen to have a family member that's in the software industry and uh, contracted him to be my coder, my programmer. And we set about the business of writing this app and translating it into digital format. And over the course of about 18 months developed what was then called Total Wellness Coach. It's now called Journey Pure Coaching. So along the way in uh, 2015, began discussions with Journey Pure and uh, June 1st of 2016, uh, Journey Pure took over the app by way of a lease purchase agreement and we launched it in the Journey Pure system of care. Uh, since June 1st, 2016, we've put over 16,000 people in the app. We have over 4,000 active daily users today. And there have been multiple layers of evolutions to this that have involved addition of various components, and in some cases, even trimming down the app to make it more streamlined, efficient, and user-friendly by eliminating certain components that by way of focus groups seemed to need to be trimmed out of the equation. So, so we're very proud of the app. Um, it is available for white label. We've, we've been very selective about white label deals, but nonetheless, uh, it's largely ours and used throughout our system of care at Regard Recovery. And so you mentioned that there has been this evolution and some things are getting trimmed, some things are getting added. And I believe last time we spoke, you mentioned the peer recovery support component was somewhat newer. Um, can you just talk a little bit about why that component was added on and the results you've seen from the peer recovery support integration? 
Yeah, so uh, the whole design of this, the architecture of this was to create an individualized relationship for continuing care. So a certified peer recovery support specialist or a recovery coach could connect with a client in a meaningful way and have a personal relationship with that client via the Journey Peer Coaching app. That was critical to us. There are other apps out there that do a great job and they're mostly focused on being kind of a community forum, right? And that's an important component that we have in place as well. But much more the central focus of this app has been that individualized relationship between a peer support specialist and the client. We found that it's been very, very fruitful for us. Um, besides the daily recovery tasks that we assign to each client, um, there's a learning center feature that provides opportunity for ongoing education and learning throughout the early recovery process and beyond. There's also a HIPAA compliant secure messaging system inside of the app. By far, the most widely used component of the app is that messaging system. So I think that connectivity factor uh, with the client to the recovery coach, coupled with the accountability factor, particularly during that fragile first year of recovery, when we wanna hold them accountable to their continuing care plan, are really the formula for long-term success and recovery. Okay. And so we were just in Nashville you know, with the round table with the payers. And one of the things that we were discussing there with them was the fact that there's, you know, over 15,000 kind of digital tools for health, even in the mental health, behavioral health space, digital therapeutics, a variety of things. And one of the challenges is, okay, there's all these tools, people want to do things, but are they actually efficacious? Are they working? Now yours is, and you guys have third-party validated data on top of your own. Um, can you talk a little bit about some of the results that you track and what results you've gotten by integrating the app into your care continuum? What I love about the way we've integrated this app into our continuum of care is that we're able to collect multiple layers of data. So an example of the type of data we collect would be administration of the full national outcome measures tool. This is a 28 item questionnaire that we administer to all of our clients at certain time cuts in their recovery process. We also administer uh, patient satisfaction surveys through the app, which is very useful data. We administer exit surveys through the app. So those are just a few of the examples of the kind of data that we're collecting. Um, what we found is our original hypothesis that I mentioned of connectivity plus accountability equals long-term success and recovery is being proven true on a daily basis. We stay connected with folks regularly we hold them accountable to their continuing care plan. And the result has been abstinence rates up to 70% up to one year after discharging from treatment. This is real data. Uh, we've been airtight with the way we collect the data. We've also been airtight with who we exclude and include in our data set. So this data is something that we stand behind. And besides abstinence rates being double or triple the national average, what we have found is that there's improvements across multiple domains, improvement in mental health symptoms, stress coping, relationship ratings, employment rates are up. And one of the big ones that we've seen, speaking of managed care organizations, is a reduction in healthcare utilization. What I mean by that is when someone has solid footing in recovery, it stands to reason as a hypothesis 
that their healthcare utilization might go down. There's less emergency department visitation. <laughs> There's less doctor shopping or script shopping or injuries associated with active addiction and or mental health disorders. So we've been able to demonstrate that to some of the managed care organizations, which has been a huge benefit to us. That's phenomenal. And just to put this in perspective for, for some of the listeners, so you guys are getting 70% abstinence rates as one metric of success. And so the average abstinence rate is about 36% for most patients at the 12 month mark coming out of treatment. So you guys are right. getting more than double the national average on top of these other uh, really valuable metrics, right? Less ER visits and better connection to care. When you look at the app, and so you mentioned kind of these key legs of the stool, right? Your accountability, your connectedness to care, but you said that you've made changes and edited things. Is there, are there specific things that you think happen within the app outside of that broad spectrum that you think is more effective than maybe other, other tools that are currently out there? Yeah, I think number one, Nick, is that connectivity factor. You know, I personally believe that interpersonal connectivity is the antidote to much of what ails those that we treat. Uh, people who are struggling with active addiction can feel like the loneliest person in the world, even when surrounded by people on a day-to-day -day basis, right? So if that's true, and I firmly believe that it is, uh, the antidote to that is interpersonal connectivity. So certainly the secure messaging feature has been a uh, really valuable tool inside of the app since day one. Other things that we found that were less valuable um, that you would think might be <laughs> uh, more key components in, in the app are things like the recovery support network. Uh, we created the opportunity to establish a recovery support network of folks for each client inside of the app. And these would be folks like a sponsor, a spouse, a friend, uh, other recovery friendly type person in the client's life to increase that sense of accountability, right? So now there's a support team around each client and they're able to get a limited view into the app to see if the client is still attending meetings, uh, doing work with his or her sponsor, uh, engaging in service work and recovery homework and all the other recovery tasks that we've laid out as part of their continuing care plan in the app. Well, what we found based on focus group information uh, and based on real world practice from day to day is that a lot of people weren't wild about that level of accountability. Um, the other thing we found out that they weren't necessarily interested in was GPS location services. So tracking where they go, allowing them to check in at a meeting and then check out of the meeting, those types of things. Now that might speak to uh, one's willingness in early recovery, right? Um, while you're in this state getting ready to discharge, we're engaging in discharge planning, talking about continuing care. We want you to commit to this high level of accountability um, and there's a fine line to balancing what is an appropriate level of solid accountability versus an invasion of privacy, right? So what we heard loud and clear from some of our clients is that uh, accountability is great, but this high degree of accountability by way of, for example, tracking uh, a GPS location uh, is an invasion of my privacy, and I'm not necessarily interested in that. So over the course of several years of this app being in operation, we've learned lessons like that. And the great part is we're able to uh, hear the voices of our clients and in giving input on that and those types of topics. Um, and we respond to that. We take action. 
Um, so it, it really kind of validates, I think, what the client's opinions are and have been really one of the reasons for the booming success in having uh, thousands of active daily users in the app every day. Well, I appreciate that example because it is an important conversation to have, right? There is this balance between accountability, which has a lot of value, especially in recovery, but also you need people motivated to use it, right? And so if they're disincentivized right. or demotivated and don't want to use it because of X, Y, Z reasons, well, then we're we're not adding any value, right? Because if they don't access it, then they're not getting the value of it. So there's this balance between how do we build something that's really effective, but at the same time, build it so that people want to use it. And it's usually a series of trade-offs. So you mentioned that accountability was a key component of the app, you think, in the success. But when you remove the GPS tracking, for example, did you see any noticeable change in results either from user engagement or long-term metrics that you're tracking? Well, the truth is, Nick, we, we began developing the GPS location services uh, before we proceeded too far down that pathway and rolled out a beta version of that. We did focus groups that yielded data suggesting we should divert away from that pathway. So we never actually launched it. I know there are other apps out there that have used this type of thing. I have heard colloquially and formally that uh, the same type of data exists in those other platforms, that people are not wild about the idea of having their uh, privacy uh, infringed upon, to put it in their words, uh, by tracking their location 24-7. Now, the truth is uh, there are a lot of apps out there, and I won't name them because some of them are pretty big apps, that are actually tracking our locations 24 hours a day, seven days per week. And this would be the default setting unless you go in and somehow uh, edit those settings to change that. Some of them need to track our location 24 hours a day, seven days a week. I use an app that tracks the mileage that I drive in my car, and it needs to be running at all times. Uh, so it knows where I am at all times, right? Now, word on the street is there's legislation coming at a federal level that's going to reevaluate the privacy laws and what we do with data, how data is collected, et cetera. And I think this is a really useful conversation that's probably a bit overdue. Our tech development curve has been really sharp in recent years and has just surpassed any kind of formal legislation that was in place related to how we collect data through these apps and what we do with that data, right? So I think on the, on the horizon in the near future, we'll see some major changes in one's ability to just as a default track one's location on a GPS basis. Yeah, yeah. Google sometimes sends me emails because I'm traveling all the time and in a, uh, providers. And I was like in over 40 cities so far this year. You know? um, yeah. But I actually set mine to reset every three months where I tell it to delete all my data because I, I am also not super, super huge fan of having Google and other whatever massive data providers just having my life's information. <laughs> available. Yeah. And, and to be, to be frank about it, Nick, you know, uh, again, kind of referencing my own personal recovery, uh, you know, my pathway was a little different. Uh, the wheels fell off for me as a, a person in active alcohol use disorder. Uh, when I was in my early thirties, um, I was just finishing up internship and a, and a doctoral program in clinical psychology, interesting timing as a transition to a person who was going to be seeking a license very soon. And, uh, you know, the board, uh, that would grant my licensure was gracious enough to say, yeah, we see you're in recovery. 
you've demonstrated that to us. We accept the evidence you've provided and we believe you. Um, and we're gonna create a program for you, a contract, if you will, through which there's a sense of accountability and whereby you agree to maintain this pathway of wellness that you're on. So to me, the accountability really served me well. Um, and I think this is why a lot of the professional monitoring programs have had successes that go up into the high 80 something percentile and even into the 90s after the two year and five year mark of following these professionals when it comes to abstinence rates from mood altering substances. So, so I think it's really, really clear in terms of the clinical research data that's out there that these types of professional monitoring programs are the gold standard. They, they produce recovery rates that are off the charts compared to the general treatment centers out there and the general population uh, being served through these treatment centers. So I think there are valuable lessons to be learned from that. And that's really the impetus for all of this development I had with the connectivity and the accountability factors being in the long-term success and recovery equation. Yeah, those are great models to go off of because you're right. It's 80. I mean, the HIMSS program for pilots is 90% success at the five year. That's mark. right. And you're right. It's, it's about accountability. It's about obviously people are highly incentivized. There's a you know, very large incentive for them to be goal oriented and be successful in these programs because it can seriously have major impacts on their life. <laughs> That's right. You you can either be a pilot or an alcoholic, but you can't be both. That's right. right. You, you pick which one you want to be. And, and we, we know which one we'd like for you to pick. But, you know, at the end of the day, on the motivational enhancement side of things, uh, no one is in the business of trying to force someone to do something they can't or won't do. So they have agency in selecting a pathway of wellness. And that pathway of wellness, to me, inherently needs to have some sense of accountability built in. Yeah, I would agree. And then obviously you're connected through your employment to other people, which is helpful. And, you know, I was just talking to Deb over at Optum yesterday and she was emphasizing the fact of how important it is for them at Optum to make sure that providers are continuing the care pathway through step downs, through integrations like your peer recovery support app and other tools, because they see it in their data. Patients stay connected to care actively, then they're much likelier to have higher success in their recovery, lower costs, obviously, to the payer end. And so that's something that they're specifically looking for. And I mean, we hear it all the time, right? The opposite of addiction is connection. And there's obviously a, a ton of truth to that. So sounds sounds like you're doing some phenomenal things there. Now, I'm sure this to create this originally wasn't easy. It was probably pretty expensive. So can you walk us through a little bit about actually the business side of it and how you guys chose to make that sure. investment and you know what return has been on it, if any? Absolutely. So um, as I mentioned, I, I just happened to, by dumb luck, moon and the stars aligning properly, uh, have a family member that was in the software business. Uh, he had served as a systems architect with a large software company uh, that had had great success. Uh, for many years um, and decided to uh, start his own software engineering firm. So I think selection of the right person is key on the front end. So this being someone that I knew and trusted in terms of the development of this valuable product was really critical to me. So as we started that process, you know, I wrote uh, all of the content. Uh, really, it was a Word document that was gargantuan. Uh, if you think about every single word and all of the formulas and algorithms and various things that go into app development, uh, it was quite a bit of composition on my part. 
for a period of time, a number of weeks, it was just all I was focused on. I was at the time doing my own consulting work through my personal LLC and had the time to do it. Um, you're right. It was not cheap. Uh, and originally the cash outlay was by me personally. So um, I was so convicted in and believe so strongly in uh, this concept that I invested my own personal capital into this at a time uh, when, you know, it was a bit nerve wracking for me, to be honest. Um, as it evolved and as we did weekly meetings with screen shares and I saw the app coming to life, I just can't tell you how it lit me up. You know, I'm a clinical psychologist by training, but this tech application idea to the behavioral healthcare industry just drove me wild. The opportunities just seemed limitless to me. So when it was finished in the box, ready to go, uh, you know, and I started having NDA signed and demoing this for treatment centers is around the time when I joined Journey Pure as a full-time employee. Journey Pure was then pretty much in startup phase. And the discussion started about the fact that, hey, we hear you have this software product that you're about to start actively pursuing the sale of. Not so fast. We might be interested in that. Uh, and lo and behold, we ended up striking a sidebar deal for a three-year lease purchase agreement such that it became Journey Pures, and, and we launched the product on June 1st, 2016. So we have the dubious luxury of having several years' worth of experience with this and several years' worth of data, again, over 16,000 data sets of, of clients that we've put in this app it's been really valuable to us. And at Regard Recovery, we're pretty transparent with that data. Uh, we've shared it with managed care organizations. It's resulted in a couple of milestone deals with managed care organizations whereby they actually pay for the app as part of a bundled rate. So that's been particularly exciting to us. That's great. I, I know how important it is to get the right people. I and mean, we spent about a quarter million dollars trying to build out some data warehouse and advanced analytics software last year and just was not able to find the right person or vendors to actually get it across the table. And so we ended up actually working with some different partners who built something else out on their own. But so I, I, I totally understand that because I've been through that component of it. But so this was a, a pretty big, you know, time and capital intensive outlay for you and then Journey Peer as well, but you guys weren't getting reimbursed for it originally. So I, I think this is just a useful conversation to have because this is obviously, it's a long-term play and a long-term investment in patient outcomes and patient care um, that took a long time to see dividends and see a return. So how, how were you guys thinking about that? And why, why do you think Journey Peer was also willing to make that investment, even though they know it was just gonna be a cost, at least for, for the foreseeable future at first, I just think it's worth exploring that because sometimes when I'm working with providers, they're not as focused on the, these long-term. And so that thought process, I think would be useful to hear from you. Yeah. So at Regard Recovery, we see the great value of this type of platform as a critical part of our continuum of care. So we boast a one-year continuum of care that starts with the pre-admission or assessment phase and then rolls into the treatment phase, which is all different levels of care from medically managed uh, detoxification all the way down to outpatient, including MAT. And then there's the all important, uh, the critical uh, phase, as I would say, of continuing care of the recovery coaching phase. And that rounds out one year 
for each client. So that's the longest phase of those three in our one-year continuum of care. And to me, it's the most important. Why? Because it's about maintenance of wellness. There are treatment centers out there that might do an excellent job with the treatment portion. They discharge them from treatment, and then they do a woefully inadequate job of remaining connected with people and or holding them accountable during that fragile early phase of recovery. And as we know, the large percentage of relapses happen during that first 12-month period after discharge from treatment, right? So it's just really important to us in terms of improving our outcomes. That's our currency, right? We think it will be in the future, how we're doing in treatment. We measure that via one platform. And then how we've done in terms of our outcomes, which we measure through our Journey Peer Coaching app, is just such valuable currency to us and has been really important in terms of our ability to actually get paid for this as well. So I don't want to sound mercenary, but I think uh, the leadership team certainly would love to get paid for using this app. Um, I think we'll get there to a greater degree in the future. We've explored everything from billing for case management and peer support services through the app. We've done that and had some success dabbling in that area. Um, as I mentioned, we've gotten a deal set to be uh, reimbursed and have been getting reimbursed at a per member per month rate as part of a bundled rate with a major managed care organization for the past couple of years. And that's gone really, really well. Um, I mentioned this thing is available for white label and, and that has produced some revenue for us as well. Um, and then there are other opportunities, I think, future facing. Um, this is a perfect complement to things like drug court or recovery court, right? It's a perfect complement to things like professional monitoring programs. We have the Tennessee Dental Wellness Committee in the state of Tennessee that uses this basically as their EHR. Um, and they stay connected with their uh, dentists who are under contract for monitoring in the state of Tennessee. They've been using it for about five years now. Um, so we see those types of golden opportunities really to have an impact in our industry, um, eventually maybe get paid for what we do in, 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 a, in a more meaningful way. Um, but make no mistake, our primary goal in all this is to have a really cool cutting edge offering that's more cost efficient than you might think, uh, very streamlined workflow associated with it and pays us in dividends in returns of our outcomes. Yeah, exactly. So two things I, I wanna comment on there. One, just going back to the research, it's funny that I have this pulled up, but I was looking at it before our call. So abstinence rates for, for treatment as usual, according to Dennis Foss and Scott from their 2007 paper was 36% at one year, and then 66% at one to three years and 86% at four to seven years. So from that data, just super clear, right? The the more successful people are in recovery, abstinence being one of those potential metrics to look at, the more likely they are to right. continue to be successful, right? So if you can increase that huge benefit and outcomes. I also like the fact that, you know, it took a long time for you guys to really start kind of making revenue on that investment from the app. But this is what we talk about all the time around value-based care and bundled contracts is the, the payers are absolutely willing to make these investments once you bring the data to the table, you know, and you guys have one of the best examples of that through Journey Peer and Regard, where it's like, hey, the data was so clear that the payers were just like, oh, well, yeah, this is amazing. Right, this right. is a no brainer. So it allowed you to get those contracts in place where you other might, otherwise might not have been able to. Right. 
Yeah, and, and I want to highlight the fact that it did require exactly what you mentioned, Nick, demonstration in a clear and effective manner of what the data is. So I really appreciated being a part of your uh, Nashville Executive Roundtable event recently, at which we had the opportunity to connect with some of the leaders from some of the major payers out there. And it was clear to me that they have departments that kind of approve these types of things, right? But they have to be vetted first, and that makes perfect sense. There are a lot of people out there with really great ideas and maybe even great products or interventions or treatments that they would love to be reimbursed for by the insurance company. But as one of the leaders in managed care noted during the roundtable meeting, uh, until we vet it, we just can't. That's exactly right. And something that you mentioned, I think is really important to point out is, you know, obviously we're talking about reimbursement and and payers here, which has value, but you also mentioned just the patient outcome component. And it's important, I think, for us to realize that that also has tremendous value, not, I mean, both on the patient end, obviously, but also on the business and financial end, if you're delivering good outcomes and you can prove that, you're going to have a higher volume of patients that are coming into that facility. You have more people that are going to refer into your organization, right? So, no, it's it's absolutely valuable, and and you know we demonstrated those types of things to the managed care organization. We happened to have 486 of their members in our system of care at the time, and 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 um, that was really valuable to be able to uh, encrypt all of that data in a CSV file, uh, send it to them on the spot and tell them, look, if you don't believe that healthcare utilization dropped down from 90% in the year before treatment to 10% in the year after, go cross-reference this with your claims. We're sending you all of that data. We're very transparent with it. They did so, took about 10 days to do it. And at the end of that 10 days came back and said, by golly, you weren't kidding. Uh, Healthcare utilization dropped off the charts when these folks had solid footing in recovery this has value to us. And a few days later, we signed the deal with them paying us on a per member per month basis uh, for the app as part of a bundled rate. So it was a huge milestone for us. Ah, that's great. You know, it's, it's such a good example for, again, everything that we're talking about here about how to make that work and how you use data to build relationships and negotiations with those kind of contracts. Something I was curious about that you had mentioned at the, the round table as well was that uh, so mainly your app, the Journey Peer app, is primarily post-discharge, and then you were using ERP Health for inpatient during treatment outcomes. I was just kind of curious about why you were using the two tools versus trying to make the one tool cover both areas. No, that's a great question. And actually, to be clear, the process for registration in our Journey Peer coaching app um, is actually executed when the patient admits to us. So they do use the app during their treatment experience. Now, when they're in residential treatment, of course, they don't have their smartphones with them. Uh, We believe that would be a problem. Um, So we give them tablets. We actually Mm. have, uh, not to uh, provide an endorsement of Apple, but we have iPads uh, and have a a lease agreement for a fleet of iPads for our residential beds. So each of our residents gets an iPad with restrictions enabled uh, through which they can do some really cool things though digitally, right? Not the least of which would be participation in our Journey Pure coaching app. Now, we, we, we also have the ERP Health platform in place. Um, ERP Health um, 
as I'm sure you know, value-based care assessment tool. Um, we do a baseline assessment and then uh, repeat administrations of these assessment tools in a battery at multiple time cuts during their treatment experience. We actually built a similar type tool into our coaching app at one point, um, and it did not flow very well, is probably in summary the best way to put it. So as we were exploring how to uh, re-engage that and redesign that, reimagine the process, ERP Health came onto the horizon and they have such a proven effective product that it was a no-brainer. Now, we've had discussions with them about integrating ERP Health into our coaching app. So now we would have all of our assessment tools, including ERP, uh, national outcome measures, patient satisfaction, exit surveys, and others inside of the coaching app, which to me really lights me up because I get excited about having everything in one place. It's just <laughs> yeah. as convenient as possible. Right, right. And even at the roundtable, we were talking a lot about just the, the one single login access, right, and making it easier for patients, making it easier for clinicians and right. staff in general, right, because the more logins, the more buttons they have to click, the more fields they have to go through one, the higher probability for errors, and two, the less likely they are to use it. <laughs> yeah, and we, we find that that single sign-on capacity, as you mentioned, Nick, is, is really, really valuable and eliminates the need for just one more platform I have to log into and manage and, and navigate. If they can do it all under one umbrella, to me, that's a huge benefit. Yeah. Well, I want to, I got a couple of questions for you on the clinical end, switching gears, but before we do that, is there anything around the app and the way that you guys are handling that data and the connection to care um, that we didn't cover that you want to mention? No, I think we've covered most of the important parts. You know, again, I, I think I can't highlight enough that this is such a central feature of our service provision across our one-year continuum of care being a part that really begins with the admission process to whatever level of care a patient admits going all the way through that one year mark. And we think it's been the differentiating factor for us. Um, the fact that we can collect outcomes through it as well and do other assessments through it, that it helps us with the pre-admission phase assessment and engaging people right out of the gate with technology in a meaningful way is just very important to us as a company. Uh, we want to be progressive and pioneering in our approach. And I think we've done a pretty decent job of that to this point. Yeah. I would say the data speaks for itself, right? I mean, you guys are getting the results, which is, is just phenomenal. So one of the advantages kind of making this transition is with an app, for example, is the massive amounts of data that you get and a consistency in fidelity, right? Because it's all being delivered the same way all the time. But then when we get into the real world of clinical delivery and interventions within whether it's private or group therapy sessions, it can be challenging. And there's a lot of research and information out there that while we speak to evidence-based practice, that doesn't always mean that people are able to effectively translate it into actual delivery within the therapeutic setting. Right. So, you know, in your roles as chief clinical officer, I was just wondering how you try to help support fidelity to evidence-based practices among such a, such a large organization. Yeah, that's a great question, and, and I would provide a four-pronged answer, if you will. The first prong would be uh, selection of the right clinical teammates. These would be uh, folks that are uh, the right person in the right seat, and uh, as I always say, the leadership model uh, that I use 
um, has three key questions that are asked when selecting clinical teammates. Do they get it? Do they want it? And do they have the capacity to do it? And the answer to all three of those questions has to be yes. So teammate selection is critical. Secondly, training is absolutely critical. We try to create clarity in our messaging at Regard Recovery around what our clinical operations look like. And then we repeat that message and then we follow up with reminding them over and over and over again. If you say something once and never repeat it again, people don't think it's really a thing. So we try to create clarity in messaging because ambiguity is unsettling for people. Uh, and then we try to repeat that message via trainings frequently around what it is we aim at with regard to clinical excellence. The third part of this is creating the right healthy climate in which our teammates operate, right? You know, our business is a tough one. Uh, we speak out of both sides of our mouths when we tell people to prioritize self-care. And by the way, could you cover an extra shift and make sure all your notes are done today before you leave, right? So um, it's a tough business to be in. And quite frankly, compared to other industries, the lifespan of a clinician is pretty short on average in our business compared to other jobs in other industries. So creating the right healthy climate environmental wellness, those types of things uh, in the workplace environment is really important to us. And last but not least, the fourth prong of this would be having an evidence-based curriculum that serves as a guidebook to service provision. Uh, we happen to use the Enhanced Illness Management and Recovery Curriculum, arguably one of the gold standards out there with regard to dual disorders treatment. Um, this is an 11 module curriculum with several topics per module that give all the great foundational pieces you would wanna see in place for a great addiction and co-occurring disorders treatment company and then many more. We also use other interventions from SAMHSA and a company out of Australia called CCI. And we have fed all of this learning center content into a new feature in our recovery coaching app called the Learning Center, through which a patient can access this data throughout their continuum of care and beyond. So those four prongs of selection, training, creating the right climate, and having an evidence-based curriculum have really shaped us up into one of the leaders, I think, in our industry in terms of adherence to evidence-based care. Uh, those are great examples because I think, um, I think listeners could potentially pull a lot from that. Sometimes when we go into provider, the curriculum is just talking points. Today is grief and loss, and that's all that the, the therapist has to work with, <laughs> which right. isn't much, right? And being as time constrained as we are and as much that's on our plates, providing a, a really extensive framework around a comprehensive curriculum is a good first start and a foundation to really help people um, along in those pathways. And then the training component and the communication as well is extremely valuable. A lot of uh, providers don't necessarily communicate frequently along the lines of clinical modalities and therapeutic interventions, which I think is an important gap that you highlighted. And then I have a question on the training component. So like what kind of training, how, how frequent are the trainings? What kind of trainings do you provide? Because that's another thing I think a lot of providers could use guidance around. Yeah, there are a couple of layers to this. Um, we, of course, uh, as per regulatory requirements, have a learning management system platform that we use. So, um, you know, uh, up to a couple of dozen uh, continuing education hours are provided 
for each of our teammates at Regard Recovery on an annual basis. Some of these are repeated trainings that have to happen annually. Other ones are more quote unquote electives, if you will, where they can get training on cognitive behavioral interventions or dialectical behavior therapy or crisis management, whatever it might be on the elective side. But more importantly to me is how we engage with our teammates. And we've developed something that I have lovingly named the Clinical Quality Training Series. This is a two times per month event. Um, we have a curriculum we've developed for this, a syllabus, if you will, on a monthly basis, where we not only pick a key topic to be done as part of a 90-minute training on a monthly basis, but one week later, we have a follow-up workshop meeting in which we're allowed the opportunity to engage in open discussion and dialogue with our teammates about that particular topic. In addition to that, I'm always out on tour with other trainings, I would say at an average of uh, one to two times per month for trainings that are needed in certain markets. You know, one of the challenges in our industry, again, is the self-care phenomenon, right? Um, we draw codependent type people who are codependent caretakers and sometimes a bit of a workaholic into our business. Um, sometimes self-care gets deprioritized as part of caring for others uh, when that happens. Wellness is not optimized and people can have a tendency to make mistakes in, in the course of their day-to-day -day work. So on the preventative side of things, we frequently have that as a topic. And that also speaks to the healthy workplace environment that we're trying to create as well. So on average, there is something going on in the way of training on a minimum of a weekly basis, face-to-face, -face, in person, and then our learning management system in the backdrop providing excellent trainings as well. There are other initiatives by way of uh, our meeting cadence. We have a quality assurance program and they have meetings uh, once a month with each market that we serve. We have other different departments that have various meetings around the financial operations of the company and other clinical service delivery pieces as well. So meetings these days are just kind of have a different flavor to them, right? In person to me is still very valuable and teleconference can be really effective and efficient for us too. So we've been able to step it up actually post pandemic uh, in terms of our ability to connect with our teammates and provide what they need in terms of training around clinical operations. Yeah, that's great because I think a lot of organizations struggle to build in those consistent training schedules. And I mean, just from what we see emphasizing the need for it is it's, it's highly valuable. Um, there's a massive difference between knowing something and being able to do something and then also being able to help someone else do something. And, you know, I mean, I've seen, for example, a lot of therapists that can tell you what an I statement is, but they can't actually make it in, in a real life situation. So, okay, let's turn this into an I statement. And they struggle to do that themselves. So then how are they actually going to effectively help patients do it? You know, if they can't do it on their own in a real time environment. Absolutely. There's a difference between someone that can talk about swimming, right? You can have people that don't know how to swim but they could tell you what to do, right? Go in the water, move your arms around, kick your legs, you can swim. But that right. knowledge doesn't mean that they can go in the water and do it. There's a big difference between knowledge and skills. And I think we often forget that within the therapeutic environment. So I think the more trainings that we can sure. provide, the better it is for, for our teams. Right. Knowledge in and of itself is not the solution. It might be an important part of the solution, right? right? Yep. Um, but, but in and of itself is not a solution. That's 100%. right. 
so really appreciate all the all the information. I mean, and I just love the work that you do. And I know everyone has Thank a lot of you. respect for you. I often get comments that some of your work is like the main thing that people will look at. <laughs> from uh, Thank you. Thank you, Nick. So no, no problem. I really appreciate it. Um, so if someone wanted to get in touch with you, Brian, or, or just Journey Pure, what would be the best way to do that? Uh, very simply, bwind, B-W-I-N-D, at journeypure.com. Bwind at journeypure.com is the easiest way to get in touch with me. And Nick, I want to express mutual admiration for you. Man, I just cannot say enough about the excellent work you're doing, the conversations you're starting, and how you are propelling us forward in this industry, man. Just so grateful to be a part of everything you're doing. Thanks, Brian. I really appreciate that. For all our listeners out there, this is the Recovery Executive Podcast. I'm your host, Nick Jaworski, and we'll see you next time.